Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 157, and today's guest is Semyon Dukac, managing partner at One Way Ventures. Semyon's professional journey started out in a rather unconventional manner. As one of the members of the famed MIT Blackjack team, he's always had an incredible knack and drive for mastering whatever challenge was in front of him. After living the life of a high roller, Semyon went on to become a very successful founder of multiple tech companies, but he found his true calling when he started angel investing and running the Techstars Boston program. He realized that his true passion was centered around helping other entrepreneurs succeed. Today, Semyon is the founder and managing partner of One Way Ventures, a venture fund that is focused on investing in immigrant founders. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Semyon's own story as an immigrant who migrated to the U.S. from Moscow, how he became a member of the MIT Blackjack team, which has been featured in movies, books, and documentaries, his experience as an entrepreneur and the companies that he founded, how he got into investing where he made over 100 angel investments, plus his involvement with tech stars, all the details on one-way ventures and how they are helping immigrant entrepreneurs, advice on generating interest from investors, common mistakes made by entrepreneurs, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. Did you know that you can get customized job alerts delivered to your inbox every single day? It's a great way to keep informed of the over 4,000 jobs listed on VentureFizz and have the jobs from a specific category sent directly to you. Don't let that career-defining opportunity pass you by. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash email to sign up. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Semyon. Semyon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we have a lot, a lot, a lot to talk about. Some really interesting things about uh, Blackjack, starting companies, uh, running tech stars, and of course, um, you know, running your own venture firm now. So uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting, um, you know, on your website, you talk about uh, there's a statistic on there. It says 55% of billion-dollar startups are founded by immigrants. So I, I think that's an amazing, awesome statistic, by the way. So why do you think it is that uh, immigrant entrepreneurs have such a competitive advantage? Uh, well, it's, it's hard to say for sure, right? We can guess. Um, we know for a fact that the majority of the unicorns have started by immigrants. Uh, we know that only about a quarter of the Series A rounds have immigrant founders in them. So immigrants are definitely statistically more likely to, to build a big business. And I would guess it has to do with, with the filtering that the process uh, produces and the fact that it's fundamentally an entrepreneurial experience, immigration itself, right? Um, the people who end up doing it tend to have a vision of their own future and to be pretty determined, um, not likely to give up, not likely to go back. Yeah, no, it's definitely, uh, like I, I have, you know, seen, I, I consume a lot of content and when you just hear about people's background stories and where they came from and, and that, you know, hunger and desire to build something, it's, uh, it, it is a competitive advantage. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, I think it's important for people to understand your background. So talk about, you know, where you were born and obviously there was, you know, what brought you to this country. So I was born in Moscow in Russia in 1968. And I came here with my parents. We were refugees from the Soviet Union and uh, arrived in the U.S. in 79, briefly in the projects and for six months in New Jersey. And then my father actually ended up getting a job in Houston. And then after that, I, I grew up in a suburb of Houston, Texas. Got it. Okay. Uh, so what were you like as a child? I, from the research I did, like, I noticed you were a lover of video games and Pac-Man. I did. I liked Pac-Man. I, liked, I read a lot as well. Um, and I would say I was a little bit uh, 
I had a bit of an anti-establishment bent, a little bit of a troublemaker, like um, maybe as part of uh, having with my family, you know, left the country that I lived in, um, sort of uh, was automatically predisposed to, to disbelieve the establishment and to disbelieve conventional wisdom and to have a lot of confidence. It's just, that was the background that I had. So what, what was your first computer? It was a Commodore 64, the first one that came out. Yes, yes. Mine was a Texas Instruments TI 994A, but uh, the Commodore 64, I, lots of my friends had that one. And I've asked that question to lots of founders and investors, and that's uh, obviously one of the you know, top three that most people yeah, have. Yeah, I, I got it. I was on the waiting list for it for a while. I was absolutely very, very eager to get the very first one. And it was by far the most expensive thing that was ever you know, given to me by my parents. It was $600. It was a really big deal. So did you master Pac-Man? I did, yes. It was quite before, a while before the C64. But, every, but, but uh, everyone was trying to master it. Like I remember, I would go to the arcade and try to, to master that and Galaga and lots of other great Right, right. Yeah, Galaga as well. I mean, I think I just found a book on how to do it. That's all. I went to the library, I found a book. There was one book on how to beat Pac-Man. I read it and I followed it. it <laughs> so nothing. that's the difference between me and you. Uh, I read the book, but still didn't master it. <laughs> Did you read the book, Mastering Pac-Man? I don't know if it was that one. There was a bunch of books then, I think. At the time, I recall, it was just the one. Just the one at the time. And it had all the patterns and, you know, you just had to follow them, remember? Well, it's, it's, you know, we're going to talk about your your mastery of lots of things. So I think it's uh, it's a common trait there. Um, So so then you decided to study computer science at Columbia. What was the thought there? Uh, Well, I like programming. I mean, I I built a lot of stuff on the Commodore 64 and on the Apple IIs when they appeared at school. And uh, Columbia was just, you know, the best school I got into when I was in New York. So I was very eager to, to escape from Houston. Um, <laughs> and I like coding. I like building stuff. And you were building stuff while you were in schools. Like, like it looked like you were actually doing some work, like early days of virtual reality and early internet. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it, as an undergrad, you know, I worked in a, in a kind of student computer services, but I also worked at IBM Research in the summers. And at IBM, we, we built a VR system. It was like using large, expensive machines. We actually tried to create a virtual world. And they did. They had a, had a publication on the subject, I think, in SIGGRAPH uh, in about oh, 87 or 88. And then I went to MIT and uh, tried a few different things, but pretty quickly I gravitated towards the idea of online payment. I liked the idea of using the internet for commerce, which believe it or not, at, at the time I was there in 1990 and 91, it was actually quite a controversial idea. The conventional wisdom, like most most folks uh, working on the internet, like I was, um, really strongly believed that it not only will never be used for commerce, but that it ought to never be used for commerce. So the idea of using internet for business was a really bad one. That one could defile it, ruin it, right? Uh, take away its purity. That was the dominant idea at the time in academia where the internet existed. It only existed in the military and in academia. I mean, that's pretty much where it was. So you, you, amazing. So you were working with it from those early, early, early foundational yeah. years of the build. Yeah, and I think some companies were starting to get it and a lot of people didn't like it. And I sort of thought, wait, I mean, it'll be really cool. Like people are already buying stuff there, emailing credit card numbers, because uh, of course email worked. There was email, there was Telnet, there was you know, FTP, but there was no web, right? There was no browsing. Um, and um, I, I thought that it'd be cool to implement a secure payment protocol with like intermediary banks and several steps, et cetera. And so that's, that's what I worked on. It was supposed to be my PhD thesis. 
but I ended up um, turning it into a master's thesis, publishing it and like leaving with a master's because I was so busy playing blackjack by then that I didn't want to keep working on it. All right, we're going to talk about the blackjack thing, but one of the things that I, um, you know, Boston doesn't give enough credit for is e-commerce and open market, how that, you know, basically made e-commerce a reality for consumers. So it was, uh, it was a big groundbreaking moment. So let's, let's talk about uh, blackjack. So um, you saw an ad at MIT of they were recruiting members to the blackjack team. So, so, so you obviously uh, joined. And what I thought was interesting was, it wasn't, um, it, it required a lot of practice, right? It wasn't something you just, you know, because you were very intelligent that you kind of picked up. It was something that you actually had to spend a lot of time training and becoming, That's you know, right. perfect the trade. That's exactly right. Yeah, it wasn't at all about being a genius. It was all about uh, just hard work and repetitive practice. That's exactly it. But I, I was very motivated. You know, I really wanted to get good at it. I knew that it could be beaten because I had read the books. Uh, because, as I mentioned, Ken Houston wrote the book about Pac-Man. He also, all his other books were about blackjack. So I had read those. And um, when I saw the poster, I, you know, I knew exactly what they were talking about. And I was very, very eager to, to do it, right? To join the group and to get good at it. So, yeah, I worked at it very hard. And I found the time, you know, to practice several times a day, every day, until I could do it. So what was it like going to the casino in Vegas and just, you know, knowing that, you know, obviously you would lose some, but you would mainly, you know, beat the system. So, so what was that experience like? So we would win maybe 52% of the time. Okay? okay. So we would lose quite often, right? It's not like we would lose occasionally, but over the long term, we did win more than we lost. And um, it was exhilarating. Uh, first, it was overwhelming and terrifying. It was easy to make mistakes. Like it was a lot of pressure. As I got used to it, um, it became less terrifying, but it was always challenging and um, kind of interesting. You know, you had to you had to be aware of how they thought of you. You had to not be thrown out too quickly, not to be figured out too quickly, and you had to be very accurate in your record keeping and, and sort of recording everything that happened. And um, you had to put up with sort of the the emotions of the big winnings and losing as well and always do the right thing statistically because there was a there was a, a method of acting too right like so you would be able to stay at the table for longer i'm assuming that you know part of the act of looking like you were losing more than you were winning right well we had to look more or less like gamblers would normally look right it was very unusual to have people as young as us display as much money as we displayed and so we had to fit the stereotypes of what a young person with that much money might look like. <laughs> and then I assumed because you were a high roller, you were getting treated like, you know, like royalty at the casino because you were spending so much money until they caught on of, uh, you know, what you were doing. Well, that's right. That's right. They have a marking budget and based on what you bet, they assume that you'll lose a certain amount. And then some percentage of that, like 20% goes back towards comps of various kinds where they give you free rooms and plane tickets and shows and whatever. So yeah, we get to enjoy some of those things. We monetized them when we could, like when we got tickets to like boxing matches with Solomon for a couple of thousand each sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, but quite often we would enjoy them and uh, it was nice until it invariably always got taken away when they realized that we were actually beating them. Of course, the first thing I do is take that stuff away. So what's your favorite story from those days? 
Oh, I don't know. So many stories. Goodness. I, you know, I will refer you to the books and the movies. If you're looking <laughs> for black tech stories, there's plenty of them. Yeah. So there's a uh, 21, which a lot of people know about. So that's based on these, on the, on the teams, but um, it was the documentary that uh, Ben put together that you were actually featured in that, that was based on one of your teams. There was several documentaries. One was a pretty lengthy piece in the history channel. I think a good hour, hour and a half. You can still find it on YouTube. Yep. I think it was called Breaking Vegas. And yeah, that told the story of a couple of teams that I was in, including the team that I ran later and the one that I, I learned on that I didn't run. Um, and yeah, it had interviews with people, including me, and it had some reenactment from an actress who kind of vaguely looked like us. Mm-hmm. And it was reasonably historical. I guess it's 80% accurate. And then, you know, the book, the book that Ben Mesrick wrote, he wrote two books. One was about me. It was my story called Busting Vegas. The other one right. was the story of the other team that played in parallel with us. Um, and the book, you know, was also mostly true with, with some exceptions, but mostly true. So, so what's, so what's that like having like a, you know, movies and books written about uh, what, what these teams did? <laughs> yeah, at first I was reluctant to talk about it. Then I actually enjoyed all the publicity and for a while. Uh, you know, this all happened years and years after I played Blackjack. Yeah. But I kind of liked it and it led to good opportunities, speaking engagements and meeting interesting people and whatnot. But after after a few months of publicity, I definitely got tired of it as well because I felt like I was trying to do something new. I was trying to get somewhere with my angel investing at the time. Mm-hmm. And I sort of started getting annoyed that people just wanted to talk about the school stuff I did many years ago because, you know, I wanted to be appreciated for what I was doing now, right? I didn't just want to have this glory of something I've already done. Like, I've done it. It's done. What's the big deal, right? It's in the past. And, and other interviews that you've done, you, you actually said that. You're like, you know what? One of my regret, regrets was doing it for as long as you did because you could have been building an internet company instead. That's right. That's right. And uh, in, in most of the interviews I give now, uh, it rarely comes up, actually. It's something that occasionally gets mentioned as a, as a kind of cute anecdote at the very end. But it's, it's never, these days, the subject of 80% of an interview. And that, that's good, right? I'm glad that I finally have done enough new stuff where that's just part <laughs> right. of the story. Okay, well, let's, let's roll into that. So, um, in that spirit, let's move on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as far as you know, actually you know, starring companies. So um, talk about the, you know, the first you know, few companies that you founded and uh, you know, what they did. Well, besides that, that second Blackjack team, which I do feel was a company that I founded, Okay. And actually, and a venture fund that I founded as well, because the team is both a company and a fund. Um, after that, the, my next real company was called Fast Engines. Right. And it, you mentioned Open Market earlier. It was actually based on a protocol that Open Market originally came up with called FastCGI, which they had ended up releasing into the public domain. And uh, we actually implemented a version of that for the various commercial web servers at the time as a server-side plugin. So we extended other web servers to have that functionality. Uh, and the purpose of it was to essentially speed up the performance of web applications. So as companies started moving their legacy applications online uh, and connecting them to their web servers, our solution enabled them to maintain really good performance as the usage scaled rapidly. and the only other way to deal with rapidly scaling usage was to rewrite all these applications with something more modern, mm-hmm. uh, which was a much bigger effort and took a lot longer. So we had an easy, simple way to speed up applications as the internet scaled. 
And at the time we were doing this, which was 97 and 98 and 99, um, that was really, really important. And so we saw a lot of traction, a lot of market demand. We didn't have to raise a lot of money. The thing scaled, you know, and we, we grew very rapidly. Yeah, because this was when you know Akamai was optimizing website performance, so you were doing application performance. Right. So was it was it connecting with like WebSphere and WebLogic, and that's you guys were the performance engine, kind of like that. Yeah, I think it was more like uh, the Netscape web server and IIS. Um, but yes, it it was middleware, and we were the performance engine, and we no, were absolutely. Okay. We definitely saw ourselves as a parallel to what Akamai was doing at the time to speed up the delivery of static images. Right. Uh, we sort of had a way to speed up the delivery of applications. And in fact, uh, in 99, uh, we got an offer from a spin-off of Akamai called Adera mm -hmm. to acquire us that we ended up taking. We talked to Akamai as well. Like Those were the obvious companies that, that could have bought us. And uh, we also got an offer from some VCs to invest in huge amount of money at some very high valuation that we were not deserving of. But we ended up taking the acquisition offer instead and uh, selling the business. Actually signed that stuff in late, very late 99 and closed the deal on March 1st of 2000. Right Good timing. Yeah, it was, the timing was <laughs> fortunate there, yeah. Yes. Uh, and then from there, you started a couple other companies, AccuRev and Vert. Yeah, Akiref, I didn't start. I, it was an investment and then I joined it for a okay. while. Um, I did start Vert, or I mean, with a bunch of other people. I had the idea for Vert and I was, I think I was on the board. I may have been chairman for a while, but uh, I didn't actually work in the company. I wasn't like an operating co-founder. Some friends of mine did. Um, and that company raised some money and scaled a little bit, but eventually fizzled out. Got it. Okay. Before it's done, um, I started some other stuff as well. But, but I also started investing uh, before I sold Fast Engines. When I still had it, I was writing some angel checks, and when I sold it, I got more serious about it. Well, I want to get deep into your uh, investing and in, you know starting out as an angel. But uh, one anecdote that I thought was really interesting was you started an early version of, of Bumble. Uh, so in the archives of the Boston Globe, there's an article written about this company you started called Gotta Flirt, which was an online dating site, but women made the rules very Bumble-esque. Well, I, I congratulate you on digging up all the embarrassing facts. <laughs> so you're right. It's true. Um, I did start a company called Gotta Flirt, which was, well, it was more of a dating game than a Bumble. It was, it was a game uh, that was played in real time, live online with the idea that it would be conducive to, to uh, making dating connections as well. And I, I, so I just was like, I was curious if the domain was live, just, you know, someone else had acquired it, but it was for sale and it was $695. For whatever reason, I'm obsessed with domains and, you know, like, like real estate, the, uh, the acquisition of them. So I'm like, that's a pretty good domain for someone if they're trying to start a dating site. But anyways, let's talk about your investing. You've done a lot of it. I mean, I think, uh, you know, there was one stretch where you just did a massive amount of investment. So what, um, what was it about investing that, you know, kind of led you down that path to, you know, obviously you're still doing it today? Yeah. I mean, I think quite early in my career, I realized that I really am like a lifelong investor rather than an operator. It's, uh, my passion. It's what I'm good at. I find it natural, uh, to, you know, to, to see opportunities, financial opportunities, but also I really like working with founders, like the founders of startups are my people, the ones I want to help. 
you know, in Blackjack, we never really got to have any customers. Nobody thanked us for what we did. And so, you know, I think doing something that's actually productive in society, you have to have people for whom you're doing it, right? And so as an investor in early stage tech companies, I serve those founders. Um, I like working on a bunch of different things in parallel. I like meeting young people and learning new things. It's just, it's just uh, where I feel most comfortable. So quite, quite a long time ago, I decided that for the rest of my life, I'm going to do some, some form of early stage investing. And like, like VCs talk about pattern recognition and like, you know, you showed a history of going back from the Pac-Man days to Blackjack that, did you think that this is something where, you know, you could uh, evaluate founders, their business idea, the market opportunity, more pattern recognition came natural for, for you? Well, I think, I think that comes with experience. I've been doing angel investing for or something similar like I'm doing now for 20, a full 20 years at this point, a little over 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I would say that uh, it's just, uh, that, that the pattern recognition comes to you automatically just uh, from experience, from doing it a long time. Like anyone who's been investing like that a long time and has written many, many checks is going to get pretty good at, at the recognition, at selecting. But I don't think that's the most important characteristic determining success of investing. The hard part actually isn't the selecting. You can, you can get a little better at it, but you know, you're never going to be perfect and you're always going to miss some great ones. Um, uh, the, the critical thing is actually seeing better deal flow, right? It's, it's living your life in such a way that better and better founders end up being connected to you somehow, mm-hmm. right? That's, that's what actually determines real investing success. And I think for me, uh, I had a pretty slow start with that. I would say in the first 10 or 12 years of, of angel investing, I think I had very limited access. I, I see some people around the MIT and Harvard communities and whatnot, but I didn't really have a broad reputation. And it was only when I when I really tried to get more philanthropic about it, when I felt like I made enough money and what I really wanted to do was just mentor and just help founders and like maybe make a little extra on the investment, but it was I no longer cared that much about it. Then I think I was able to finally uh, build a reputation and and actually get better deal flow. Right? It had to do with uh, being known as someone who genuinely wants to help the founders, like very very earnestly, and who doesn't necessarily care so much like what they think about them. Like I was willing to tell people tough stuff when I thought, you know, when I had tough things to say, I wouldn't hold them back. I wouldn't care what they thought of me. You know, I really was just very real, very candid. And, and I generally really wanted them to succeed, you know, especially once I got involved, I just, I wanted them to do well and people sense that. Right. And it turns out um, your desire to help is actually a really big factor in how much you can help, like versus any particular knowledge base, right? It's just the empathy that really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, eventually, you uh, went on to to run TechStars Boston. So uh, you did that for was it three years? Yeah, I did it for three, a little over three years. with four classes, uh, four cohorts of, of TechStars companies. So, so why did you decide to do that? Well, it was a real surprise. I mean, the, the Techstars folks came to me. I didn't really think of doing it. You know, I actually, I wanted to be NLP and I wanted to invest in the fund that, that, that sponsored, the, the, the fund that funded the Boston part of Techstars because I was finding myself write a lot, writing a lot of angel checks into those companies. You know, and I, I went to 
for Katie Ray, who was running the program at the time and, and really had one of the strongest programs in their whole system and really had great results and was very well respected by, by the founders and by mentors. And I said, I just asked her if I could invest, you know, in the fund and how much I wanted to invest, like more than, than generally was possible because the fund was always full. Um, yeah, and she, and she basically said that she was moving on and, and uh, I was uh, one of the names they were considering for, for running it, which, which was a real shocker, actually. And, you know, I thought it over quickly. And of course, yeah, I took it on. I mean, it was a really good deal. And um, I was just surprised that they would trust me, right, with the reputation of such a great program. And especially, like, they basically gave me a lot of control. They let me, you know, decide which companies to take and what criteria to even look for, et cetera. Um, and I took it very seriously. I also you know, worked very hard. I actually, I, I spent one program uh, full time, like absolutely full time, just trailing Katie, the last one she ran, because we had the conversation right before she started her last one. And so I actually did that. In addition to the four that I did, I did this fifth one where I wasn't officially, I didn't have any title, but, but I was there like every single day, you know, long hours, really trying to, to figure it out. Um, like with Blackjack, like it's something I really wanted to do, right? Um, and at the end of the day, it's really the only time I had what you'd call a job, <laughs> right? As part of an existing big organization. Uh, so it was very rewarding. I, I learned about a bunch of stuff that I didn't know about, like how to work with all the VCs in the area, for example, mm-hmm. and uh, how to connect all these different mentors to startups, uh, how to work with groups of CEOs. So, um, you know, we had some group dynamics, almost a form of group therapy, you could say. <laughs> um, a lot of things like founder conflict inside companies where I ended up being very involved as a mentor and um, tried different things, tried recruiting companies internationally to Boston, um, tried also uh, going a little later stage. And then towards my last class, I was actually going earlier stage. I was, I was just finding the very strongest founders I could find that were just starting out. Um, was able to attract like more more women CEOs uh, to the program. So my last one was half and half, pretty much men and women. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the beginning, you know, there were no women at all. Hardly. It was like one in every class until the last couple. Um, and, uh, you know, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And it was fun, of course, in demo day, there's like a thousand people in the room and, and you get to go on stage and introduce all these great companies every year. You know, it could go to your head too, pretty easily. Mm-hmm. So I, I loved it, but I also felt like, like by the time I was doing the last one, it wasn't as much of a challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't create a program like Katie deserves much more credit for its success than I do. I think I incrementally improved it a little bit, mm-hmm. but uh, it's very, very hard to build a program like that from scratch. And so, you know, perhaps I could have done that. I could have gone to another city and built like, such another program, but uh, instead I saw this opportunity to start from scratch and to really uh, to build, you know, a whole other concept, which is this VC fund uh, for backing immigrants, which are called One Way. So yeah, let's talk about One Way. Stars. Yeah, yeah. In 2017, I, I ran my last Xers class and okay. and went out and raised this fund. And the idea is uh, very simple: we back immigrant founders because they're more likely to build outside successes, and also because, like, we're immigrants, we like them, we relate to them uh, as much as. You know, startup founders are my people. Like immigrant startup founders are like doubly so my people, right? It's just my tribe. It's my nation. It's, it's I am. An, I consider myself an immigrant first, more than an American or anyone else, right? That's 
that that's what I think of as my country. It's the, the virtual, you know, country of old people who've moved from one to another and who don't necessarily quite feel entirely comfortable with either the one they left or the one they came to. All of those people that are somewhat in limbo, mm-hmm. uh, all of those people that believe in themselves and believe in that they should have the opportunity to go anywhere they like and to create, to build, right? I, those are my people. And so it just feels very natural to to run a VC fund that focuses on that demographic. It's also very lucrative because like I said, those people, they don't have a valuation premium. You don't get a higher valuation just because you're an immigrant, but you actually should. Like you, the results warrant a higher valuation at the beginning. Um, and so we, we naturally, I think, do better than we would if we didn't have that focus just financially. But it's also it's also a lot of fun. And most recently, I actually have added a foundation. So now there's a one-way ventures as well as a one-way foundation. And the foundation, you know, we just take donations, and every year we give money away to a bunch of operating charities that yeah. that help refugees, that help any kind of immigration-related cause, where um, where you end up helping people who really need help. Because the founders that one way backs, you know, those founders don't need any help. Like we're not we're not backing them to help them, right? We're backing them because we have the great fortune to be able to invest in their amazing businesses, mm-hmm. right? Um, but we feel like we want to do something philanthropic also, and so that's why it's the foundation. That's awesome. I didn't I didn't know that was part of uh, your firm. That's well, it's not technically part of the firm. It's on the webpage, but it's a separate entity, right? It's yeah. It's like a donor advised fund. The Boston Foundation actually does it in the back end. Okay. Um, but it's not, we don't really do anything, right? We just give money away to, right. to other charities. That's all we do. So one way is it's mainly seed investing, right? But it's like, you're not, it's not like you're running with a specific thesis of we're, you know, investing in consumer enabled companies. It's, you're very broad as far as what you'll invest in. Well, we generally invest in technology and we are trying to look for, you know, disruptive, scalable opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, seed, some series A, mostly seed. Yeah, the first fund that we raised was $28 million. So we had 85 individual investors, many of whom were themselves entrepreneurs who sold their companies. Mm-hmm. And um, we write 500K checks typically at the seed stage for the most part. Um, and uh, going forward, you know, we're going to raise larger funds and maybe do more, more survey as well. Okay. So, so, so what do you look for when you actually do write that check? Like what, what gets them to the point where you're like, yes, I want to be involved? I mean, it's mostly the CEO, right? It's the team, but but it's mostly the CEO, right? And you look a lot at the team, uh, both to see sort of the early traction of hiring, but but more so to see the recruiting abilities of the CEO, of the, like the primary founder. Uh, if they're able to get very strong people to join them, that's, that's a very good sign, right, about what they're capable of. And then uh, we're trying to make sure that it's a large opportunity, that it could turn into a big market that it's not going to be locked into a small market. So we, we're not looking for like, you know, 5X return on some, some you know, something that's going to be a 50 or $100 million exit. Um, we're looking for something that's going to go very large. And we, we write a lot of checks uh, because we recognize it's very hard to find those opportunities. But uh, those are the main things, I would say. Um, I mean, and of course, you can break it down and then include stuff like defensibility, right? There has to be something. In order to get really large, you have to not get copied and crashed as soon as you get a little bit large. Mm-hmm. So usually that comes in the form of deep technology, something unique, right? IP, 
but sometimes it can come from other things, a special understanding of the market or a special channel or whatever. Now, if someone is interested in uh, meeting with you, like what, what's the best way to, to get on your radar? And then what do you expect out of that like first meeting? Well, uh, like with most investors, like, you know, we have an inbound email address, uh, info at onewayvc.com, and someone will look at, at stuff that you send in. And very occasionally, you know, we, we would take a meeting, uh, but your chance of getting a meeting would be very small. You know, maybe one in several hundred would result in a meeting from, from an inbound email. Uh, almost all the meetings we do take come from warm intros. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's not they don't love that fact you know because it shouldn't be about who you know right but at the same time there's just so, only so much time in the day and and actually i think uh, because we don't invest in companies internationally very much we mostly invest in companies in uh boston new york toronto montreal san francisco kind of la areas right and a little bit in other places in the u.s uh, we've we're we're only made three investments in Europe, right? Like we, we're not, we don't have the resources. We don't have the people on the ground yet. So that means that you already have to be an immigrant. So we're not looking to, uh, to invest in people in various countries who want to come here later and become immigrants, right? It's not the thesis, it's actual immigrants. Right. Um, for now, we may, we may evolve, right? And we may in the future write small checks before they move, I have no idea. But for now, we're only able to look at immigrants. And so you kind of have to be in one of these areas, one of these geographies that are close to us. And if you're here, uh, like if you're really building a business and you're talking to customers and you have engineers, you're invariably going to know a bunch of people who we know. Like you don't really have to do a lot of networking to meet them. You're going you're gonna to meet them. And so someone is going to find what you're doing interesting. Because if you're not talking to anyone, if you're like keeping it secret with your co-founders and not telling anyone what you're doing, you're not very likely to succeed, right? Because you'll probably solve the wrong problem. Yep. You're not going to learn about all the nuances of what other people have tried to do and, and what the customers might really want and what kind of other customers or channels there are. Like you usually have to be pretty public and open. And so as you get some traction and learn uh, about uh, your, your market, your product, um, you're going to invariably uh, meet other people, other founders perhaps, um, and someone, someone will probably introduce you to investors, uh, including us. And then a better question, I think, is once once we meet them, uh, you know, the, the strongest founders tend to tend to generate a lot of interest from a lot of investors. And Boston is full of VC funds, right? So um, I think uh, we, we often have to kind of address, like, why? why? Why would they take our money? You know, what can we offer that other people can't? Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, the reality is, like, we, we don't have a very, very unique uh, value prop. Like, I try to be helpful, and I do have a good reputation, but that's, that's not a very scalable thing. And, you know, um, I can only do so much, especially if they write a lot of checks now. Um, and, you know, my partner here is, is newer to investing, so he has, doesn't have this long track record of companies he's helped. Uh, we do have a couple of venture partners, uh, one in Montreal and one in San Francisco. Uh, who who have done some investing as well and have have a good reputation for helping folks, but it's not enough, right? Like we don't yet provide a lot of other resources. Like we can't help you with HR and marketing and all this other stuff, right? So it actually comes down to uh, being a part of this uh, group of immigrant founders that are backed by a fund of other immigrant founders and the hope that these peer companies will want to help each other a little bit more because they have that experience in common. Mm -hmm. um, in a way that uh, you get 
national identity working in your favor, like a lot of Indian founders in particular are notorious for helping other Indian founders at all levels mm -hmm. uh, of building companies. We're trying to expand that a little bit and get you know Indian founders to help Russian founders and Israeli founders and Brazilian founders, et cetera, get people to think of themselves a little more broadly as immigrants. Um, but I think even beyond that, I think a lot of people just end up working with us because they like what we're doing conceptually. They just think it's cool, you know, as immigrants themselves. They just think it's really awesome that, that someone is running a fund with that with that focus. And they like they find a way to include us generally. We haven't they haven't been excluded from around. We wanted to participate in more than a couple of times in the last two years. So what, the, like, I, I know you're, you'll invest in technology, broadly speaking, but are there things that you're finding super fascinating, regardless of investment or not, but like uh, thoughts on technology in the future? Because obviously you're placing bets on the future to the point where I think you're on the board of Terrafugia, right? Like the flying car company that was acquired? Well, I was. I am no longer. They've been acquired, but I right. was on that board for a long so that time. Was, and Flying cars, right? That's that's a vision for the future. So, what are your thoughts as far as? Sure. I mean, yeah. There's a lot of areas that are super interesting. I, I, I am doing actually other things that are flying. Uh, have quite an interest in in space. So, and we have three companies in a portfolio at one way. Already, all three of them marked up, uh, having raised larger rounds after we invested. Um, uh, that are doing stuff in outer space, and then the like uh, deep learning as applied to many different areas from applications to uh, vision. We have one company doing vision uh, in the agro world for for machines that spray pesticides on, on weeds. They recognize like which kind of weed it is and spray the, the right kind of pesticide. Hmm. Um, we have some stuff on logistics. Um, it's pretty broad, right? But but I have areas I find particularly interesting. And then my partners, you know, Lex, uh, who is full-time here with me in Boston, he really likes fintech in some other areas like productivity tools, but he's made uh, a couple of really interesting fintech investments. Um, and, um, you know, we've looked at AR, um, uh, some SaaS. Um, it's, it, you know, we, we will look at most things, but if it's an area that one of the investing partners particularly likes, then they're more likely to spend more time and to, to, to take the meeting. Yeah. Now you started this thing called the Troublemaker Award. Is that still something that you're you're running these days? No, no, my my days of sponsoring troublemakers are over. <laughs> I did it for three years. Okay, I was a trip that was still ongoing. Yeah, so. no, I'm kind. Of, I try to keep things focused so in the philanthropy yeah. as well, like one one at a time. So it's now the one foundation, and that's that's where I'm donating my money. Actually, I mean, potentially all my money is going to that thing. I mean, I have a will where essentially everything I have will go to the foundation. Okay. So you've worked with lots and lots of founders. So, um, you know, are there common missteps that you see kind of occurring over and over again? Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of mistakes that, that a lot of founders repeat. You know, I already mentioned being very secretive. Mm -hmm. I mean, people generally aren't focused enough. They generally don't say no enough to opportunity. They they chase bright shiny objects, and um, you know, people always make the mistake of taking too long to fire someone, especially if it's a key person, like a co-founder. Um, people take take their time to figure it out and aren't as decisive as they could be. You know, there's many mistakes that you that you make, but at the end of the day, uh, you iterate and you learn and uh, you move forward, right? 
So when you talk about like, you know, you should be open about, you know, sharing your idea with others, but you know, some people are like worried about that. Someone might steal it. So is that, is that ludicrous that, you know, someone has that mentality? Well, it's not ludicrous. It's just, it's generally counterproductive. Like you, you give up more by trying to, to act in that fear and, and protect that secrecy. You give up opportunity and you don't get enough people engaged who could be helpful to you. Yeah. No, I mean, ideas are a dime a dozen, right? And it comes down to a team and their ability to execute on it too. Yeah, I mean, in my experience, most of the time, almost all the time, when someone is being very secretive about the idea, it's just not a very good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, because an idea doesn't instantly become very good, right? An idea evolves. Every conversation you have with each person slightly modifies your idea. And so if you don't have very many conversations, the, the idea probably just hasn't really been tested. So you brought up a misstep that I don't think we've ever discussed on, on the VentureFist podcast, firing a co-founder. That must be uh, incredibly, an incredibly challenging situation. So, so how would you advise or guide someone through that process of A, recognizing that this needs to happen and B, following through on it? Well, it's the same as firing anyone. I mean, I think uh, it's a question of fit for the role. And uh, when you, you know, you have to you have a lot of confidence in key people. And if you start finding yourself having a lot of doubts about whether or not a, a, an important key person in the company is right at this point for this role, you know, chances are that's a decision you should have made already, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because when you have the right person in the right role, you're ecstatic. You're, you don't have any doubts. You're, you're, you're sure you're, you count your blessings and you count your lucky stars for having been able to attract this person to your organization. And you're terrified of losing them. And if you find yourself thinking very differently, kind of going back and forth uh, on whether uh, that you should keep them or not, well, it's just it's a painful and difficult thing to do, right? And so we tend to delay. So yeah, I generally advise people to be very decisive about this stuff. Now, for other successful entrepreneurs that are invest, they're interested in getting into angel investing or you know mentoring other entrepreneurs. Like, what's a good way to get started if they've never never done either of those? Um, well, I think uh, the best way to get into mentoring is to find a group like a tech stars in your area uh, that already has uh, filters, you know, fairly strong founders and uh, try to help them in some way. Um, likewise with angel investing. Um, there's lots of ways to find startups and as soon as you let it be known that you're interested in writing checks, like you're going to have a line of people at your door. Um, I would say probably better to, to work with a good accelerator. If you can, like actually be an LP in a fund of some sort, invest in some program, right? Work with some folks who are more experienced, be part of some team, right? Go help a program, run it and learn from it. Um, because it's a pretty long learning curve, right? And the feedback loop is long. So sometimes it takes you a good decade to really find out how well you're doing. So it's, if you're going to be self-taught at it, like, just don't expect to, to make money, you know, um, unless you get lucky. You, a, you have to write a lot of checks, but B, like you kind of want to, you want to learn a lot. You want to see a lot of deals before you invest too much money. So you, you want to keep your check size very small until you're really confident that you're good at it. Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, I would say that uh, there's nothing wrong with writing a big check into a small number of companies as long as you don't expect to make money, right? You, the, the, ideally, 
you do the angel investing and you expect to lose all your money and you're cool with it because you know it's a fantastic hobby like it's it's really really satisfying it's much more fulfilling than spending that money on some some cars or a boat or something you know so if you're willing to do that it could be really fun and you find some way to be helpful and then you know who knows eventually it might become a profession but it'll take time for sure and i you know, at the end, I was also investing in funds. I sort of wish, in retrospect, I wish I had the humility to only invest in funds in the beginning, spend time with the funds I invested in, learn from them, and then at the end, start investing in companies like myself. Uh-huh. Like, that would have made more sense, right? Like, I had a pretty big failure rate. I was lucky in that I had a couple of big hits early on as well. So, yeah. you know, my overall angel number is about 35% a year, like, over every single year in, in terms of actual now i'm only counting cash you know exits not not markups because you know the markups they go up they go down um they're just an early indicator but the, the actual results is cash and cash results and that takes a while um and i've been able to maintain that kind of number so far with like when i ran the texture funds so those funds have similar returns in the high 30s low 40s per year right and and that's what we're trying to do with one way and so far we, we seem to be on track you know but uh, but it's just early indicators, right? It's markups. It's, it's not yet cash and cash. Exactly. So w- w- what do you like to do for, for fun outside of work? I like to work hundred hour weeks and yeah. not do very much outside. I, I do think it's important to have balance in your life, but personally I've organized my life in stages and I, I worked very hard for a while and, you know, then I had a good, eight, nine years where I spent a lot of time with kids and I did a lot of windsurfing, tango dancing. I flew a helicopter, my own helicopter, you know, kites, like all sorts of stuff, you know, biking across countries, whatever. I did all this stuff. I learned all this stuff. And after a while, I just uh, wanted to work and build. And the last few years, you know, with Techstars and now with One Way especially, uh, the only thing I do is sports, like I run. quite a bit i run some marathons um and i do work out you know on the days i don't run i do something like every morning for a good hour that's pretty much it right now i haven't done kite surfing in over a year you know i haven't flown the helicopter in several years i wouldn't even know how to do it anymore um of course i see my kids but i try to just do really quality time short bursts of, of good connection but i don't you know go spend days and days with them is there something on you? I like, don't do weekends. I work Saturdays and I work Sundays. Like pretty yeah. much, there. I don't take, you know, a weekend day. I work a good eight, ten hours on, on Saturdays and Sundays generally. So, is there something that's uh, like still on like a, a short list of something that you still want to learn? Like it's like you know something that you want to tackle next because you've shown a demonstrated track record of mm-hmm. finding a topic and nailing it, crushing it. So what's, do you have something that's kind of next? Yeah, I mean, I am very focused on this fund. I want one way to grow into a really respected, like sizable fund franchise, you know, with yeah. partners in different places and uh, backing all kinds of immigrants from different countries to different countries. And I want to show that it's lucrative. I want to show that we can generate very high returns because part of that, not just to, to I mean, I want to make money for me, for my investors, of course, that's important to a lot of them. But beyond that, Showing that we can have really great returns also demonstrates to the whole world just how awesome immigrants are, right? It shows that a fund focused on immigrants outperforms the other funds. You know, that tells you something about the value of immigrants versus the threat of immigrants, right? It reminds people that they come here and create jobs. 
Mm-hmm. Some of them, I take some jobs, but they create jobs, right? They create companies. Um, and that's, that's kind of cool. I want, I want that to be very clear. I'd right? like the success of this fund to demonstrate that. So that's, that's the goal and that's the focus. But as far as learning, I mean, there's lots of learning along the way, right? Every time I invest in a new kind of company, I learn about some new kind of tech, some new science sometimes even. And it's fascinating, of course. You have so much to learn. There's always more to learn. What about civilian space travel? Would you ever do that? As, well, as I, go up if, to, I, if I needed to get civilian. somewhere, if I, if I needed to get to Melbourne and it was a one-hour flight that went into orbit and back, like, and I was in a hurry, yeah, I'd take the flight. But, I mean... Would I do space tourism? Absolutely yeah. not. That seems boring. I wouldn't do that. It sounds like a waste of fuel and a waste of greenhouse gases. I, mm-hmm. I don't like thrill rides, joy rides. Like none of that appeals to me. Okay. You know, if people were settling Mars permanently, you know, yeah, maybe. Like it's hard <laughs> to imagine. I live long enough to see this, but if I did, you know, that that might have an appeal. You know, uh, go immigrate to another planet and and set up a, a great society out there. Maybe that, yeah. Okay, I'm seeing a future, maybe, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not not a joy ride. Yeah. And as far as investing in it, you know, I think uh, it's very capital intensive to to create a flight with humans in it, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. So while I'm open to it, I did learn Terrafuja was a long, hard road. You know, it wasn't easy to get the company sold, and now it looks like they're actually going to deliver some some flying cars. Uh, in the not too distant future, they have a lot of resources. The company has bought it, is putting a lot of resources behind it. So, uh, but it wasn't easy. That's so cool. Well, Samian, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all your great experiences. You know, from blackjack to starting companies to doing the really, really important work that you're doing now with One Way, with a, just a, such an amazing, compelling you know mission behind the fund. So it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm happy to share the story and you know if any of you listeners know uh companies you know with amazing immigrant founders who are building something really big please send them my way and uh likewise if people want to invest in these funds uh, please send them as well, my way as well perfect well thanks for your time all right thanks very much well that's our show i hope you found it useful and entertaining if you did please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes also please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry it all really helps us out last but not least don't forget to visit venturefiz.com the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs news and insights thanks for listening and i'll see you next time